Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. We usually call June in my corner of Oregon, Junuary, because it is often cold, gray, and rainy. Climate change has made this nickname increasingly quaint. I was working in the ICU during the heat dome event in June of 2021 in the Pacific Northwest. Temperatures reached 116 degrees Fahrenheit, over 23 degrees hotter than the average hottest June day. It was horrible. Half my ICU filled with people who were critically ill from extreme heat. One of them died despite me doing all I could do. We transferred this person to another hospital with even more advanced life support capabilities, and they still died within 24 hours despite maximal critical care. These extreme heat events are happening more frequently. 10 to 20 years ago, around 5,900 people were dying each year due to excess heat, and that number is increasing and almost certainly an underestimate. At least 600 people died from the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest and at least 400 in British Columbia. Why does this happen when the air is so hot? What can we do about it? To understand this more, I wanted to speak to a human physiologist. That is someone who studies how the human body works from the cellular level to organ systems. I am excited to share this podcast episode with you. My guest discusses how heat can make you sick, which is known as morbidity, as well as how heat can kill, which is known as mortality. It's a rich and dense discussion, and I hope you find it as helpful as I did. Professor Ollie Jay is the director of the Heat and Health Research Incubator and Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney in Australia. His research activities primarily focus on developing a better understanding of the physiological and physical factors that determine human heat strain and the associated risk of heat-related health problems during work or physical activity, as well as among the general population during heat waves. He has led several large-scale projects that have directly influenced international public health heat wave policies in the United States and Europe. He has also led extreme heat policy development for Sports Medicine Australia, Tennis Australia, like the Australian Open, and Cricket Australia. In 2021, he co-led the first-ever series on heat and health in The Lancet, which is a major medical journal. Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Hi, Erica. Thanks for having me on. So how did you become interested in studying the impact of heat on human health? You know, I have a lot of colleagues that have really interesting kind of origin stories, and I don't have a particularly interesting <laughs> one, but um, yeah, it really just came through my undergraduate training. Um, so I'm originally from the United Kingdom. I went to university at Loughborough University in the East Midlands, and um, I had the privilege of, of doing an honours um, undergraduate dissertation with a, a professor who was really leading in the, in the general field of human thermal environments, Professor Ken Parsons. So that's how I got in, in, interested in it. Originally, I started looking at cold stress. Uh, my PhD was on frostbite thresholds under the supervision of Professor George Havaneth. And then, then I started uh, doing some postdoctoral fellowships in Canada. And eventually I, I made my way into heat stress. And that, that work really took off when I moved to Australia in, in 2014. And here we are. Yeah. So when it was colder, you were interested in cold. And then you moved to Australia where it's hot and you got into heat. <laughs> well, I'm originally from Wales and uh, it rains a lot there. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I should be doing a drowning or something. I don't know. Yeah, potentially. So what ways does the body have to deal with heat in general? Well, there are there's two ways of looking at it and they are complementary. So there are the physiological ways in which we can cope with the heat and there are behavioral ways in which we can cope with the heat. So if we touch on the physiology first, so there are two main mechanisms that uh, most of your listeners will be familiar with is um, a redirection of 
blood uh, towards the skin surface through a process called cutaneous vasodilation. So this is a, a dilation of the blood vessels in the skin that enables quite a large proportion of our cardiac output to be redirected to the skin to support heat dissipation from the skin surface to the surrounding environment. Now, of course, with that redistribution of blood, that carries with it a, a challenge to blood pressure regulation, which is something that we'll probably touch on a little later on in terms of the challenges that people face. So there's a vasodilation response. And then um, also we have the sweating response, of course, as well. So eccrine sweat glands, we have between two and four million eccrine sweat glands distributed across the skin surface. And we secrete sweat onto the skin surface and it must evaporate. So the production of sweat that keeps us cool, of course, is the evaporation of sweat. So it's those two main physiological mechanisms that help us cope with the heat. When it comes to then uh, behavioral responses, there's ways in which we can sense the environments, predominantly through afferent information that comes from thermoreceptors that are either heat sensitive or cold sensitive that are located across the body in, in different locations and in different densities. And we integrate that information and then we, we can then respond behaviorally to it. So if we're feeling cold, we'll try to get out, out of a breeze, we'll try to find shelter. And in the heat, of course, we'll do the opposite. We might try to change our, the amount of our body surface area that's exposed to facilitate more heat loss. Um, we'll try to find a breeze to try to promote convective heat loss and evaporative heat loss from us, our, our skin surface. Uh, we'll slow down is an, an obvious one because um, we generate quite a lot of heat as a byproduct of cellular metabolism. And that's really upregulated when we're physically active and we're contracting large muscle masses. So we slow down, that's a, a very effective behavioral way. So the vulnerability comes from when you have physiological vulnerability, and I think we might touch on that a little later on, when that's coincides or it's coupled with a lack of behavioral adaptive capacity. Yeah, so how do these big events like heat domes or heat waves affect the body's ability to regulate heat? Are we just less able to regulate it when there are sudden changes or how are how why are they so lethal? Well, there's not a focus on sudden changes. And, you know, I, I, there's epidemiological evidence that shows that if you have a, an early extreme heat event in a season, um, then the mortality tends to be higher. That's often attributed by epidemiologists to an acclimatization response. Now, as a physiologist, I think of acclimatization or acclimation in terms of the physiological adjustments that happen to the human body when we're repeatedly exposed to the heat. And one thing that's really important to keep in mind is that the, the, the hammer with which we need to, to hit the thermoregulatory system in order for it to adapt quite dramatically is a lot. So physiologists, there's a, lot, there's a community of thermal physiologists around the world and we all know that in order to heat acclimate somebody in a climate chamber, you need to expose them to really severe heat stress for at least an hour and a half, two hours a day. Often that's coupled with moderate to vigorous exercise intensities and do it for seven to 10 consecutive days. So if we then kind of look at that in relation to the type of exposures that people experience through regular day average living conditions, then we're probably not getting that type of adaptation. So there might be some physiological adaptation. I think a large component of it is our learned behavior. And uh, obviously we, we get used to what works. I remember when I was a postdoctoral fellow back in 2005, I moved to Ottawa in Ontario in Canada. And um, my first winter there was absolutely miserable because I didn't know how to behaviorally adapt to the cold. 
And then I figured out some of the things that worked. And so my second winter was much better than the first winter. And I think, you know, in, in a sense that 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 is translatable to hot environments as well. If we go back to the original kind of mechanisms of, of heat transfer and uh, of thermoregulation, the reason that extreme heat events become problematic are really twofold. So if you have a high ambient temperature, the way in which we lose heat via non-evaporative heat transfer pathways, so convection and radiation, that's driven by a temperature difference between the skin surface and the environment. Now, when the temperature of the environment is hotter than the skin, that reverses that temperature gradient. So now you're gaining heat from the environment. Plus, you've got the metabolic heat that you're generating inside the body. And the only way in which you can now dissipate that heat to stop your body overheating is through sweat evaporation. And if we have an underlying condition which limits our ability to sweat, that becomes problematic. Or if it's humid as well, such as when we have these heat dome uh, events, the ambient humidity limits the rate at which that sweat can evaporate. And that's where we really run into trouble. In other places, you might have people who are undertaking certain occupations that require them to be physically active despite the hot conditions. So they can't slow down or some jobs, for example, require certain types of clothing or equipment that would then impair their ability to keep cool as well. So it's, it's quite complex and there's lots of different variables, but um, in, in a short summary, that's, that's uh, I think, what we're seeing. So what does heat stress do to the body? Like what's actually happening in the body with heat stress? You know, I've seen yeah, people in the ICU die from it. And I, I, I yeah. it's honestly like they're melting in front of me. I mean, it's just they're in, yeah. you know, DIC, they're in shock, multi-organ failure, and I can't get ahead of yes. it. Yeah. So there are one thing that's really important for everybody to understand, and you will understand this as a, as a physician in an emergency unit, is that it's not just heat stroke that kills people and makes people sick. In fact, heat stroke is often uh, the minority of cases in traditionally in heat waves that are present at, ICE, um, at, at emergency departments. Um, often it's complications due to cardiovascular disease, complication due to renal disease things like this. And so the pathways are different. So we summarize it in kind of three main ways. And there are other pathways as well. But the three main pathways to think about when it comes to the underlying pathophysiological mechanisms that lead to heat-related morbidity and mortality are firstly, there's heat stroke, so critical overheating. There is cardiovascular collapse or uh, issues with the cardiovascular um, system. And then there's renal collapse, so issues with the, the system associated with the kidneys. And so the pathways are different and not just people overheating. So the first one's the easy one, that's heat stroke. So very briefly, if we go back to those physiological mechanisms that I described in the, in the first case about how we respond to the heat, we redirect lots of blood to the skin surface. And if that is insufficient and with the sweating response is insufficient to keep the body cool, deep tissue temperatures will rise. And so when you have a high internal body temperature, 41, 42 degrees Celsius, and it's coupled with a low level of oxygen delivery to the gut due to the redistribution of, of this blood to the skin, so you have less blood flow to the gut, uh, the, the lack of oxygen delivery to the uh, endothelial cells of the gut causes these gap junctions, which normally stay very nice and tight, they become looser. And then you have endotoxins that reside typically within the gut. They start leaking out and entering the circulation. This then leads off a cascade of, of, of effects 
which will result in mass coagulation in various parts around the body and multiple organ failure, exactly like you're describing, Erica. So, and that's that that's that's heat stroke. Now, heat stroke is a medical emergency, recognizing the signs and symptoms, which you'd be much better placed to, to, to describe. It's really essential and rapid, aggressive cooling to treat them is really, really important. Um, some great work by the Corey Stringer Institute, at the University of Connecticut, led by uh, Doug Kasser. They've kind of sh shown um, that rapid response, rat rapid treatment of somebody presenting with heat stroke symptoms is really this, the key to success of uh, increasing survivability. I, th I think it's, it's quite similar to somebody who's showing cardiovascular symptoms is that the sooner that you treat them with the right treatment, the greater the, the, the chances of survivability. Now that's heat stroke. So moving away from heat stroke, you can have people with cardiovascular disease who may perish in a heat wave, not because they have critically high core temperatures, but because the way in which their body responds to try to defend core temperature places so much strain on the cardiovascular system that because of an underlying infirmity, it becomes uh, problematic. So again, we go back to the physiological ways in which we respond to the heat, redirection of blood to the skin surface. We need to maintain central blood pressure so we can maintain consciousness. This is mediated by baroreceptors. So in order to do that, you have to increase cardiac output. Now, cardiac output is made up of stroke volume and heart rate. The venous filling pressure is either maintained or if you're upright, often is declining. This means your stroke volume, if anything, goes down. The only way you can increase cardiac output to maintain blood pressure is by increasing heart rate. And what we see through passive heat wave exposures in human participants is that heart rate can go from at rest, this is without physical activity, exposed to extreme heat conditions. It might be 60 beats per minute at rest. It might go up to 100 beats, 110 beats per minute. If you look at the heart rate trace of a person that's exposed to extreme heat, particularly an elderly person, their heart rate trace looks like somebody running on a treadmill. But all they're doing is being exposed passively to extreme heat because the cardiovascular demand that's placed on the body by virtue of the fact that we're trying to do to, to, to we're trying to defend blood pressure um, in parallel to this redistribution of blood to the skin surface. So of course, if you've got something like coronary artery disease, it's highly likely that you're more you're far more likely to then have an ischemic event, which then might lead to a catastrophic cardiovascular event. Now this occurs in all likelihood in the absence of critically high core temperatures, it's because the way in which the body is trying to defend core temperature in response to the thermal insult. And finally, you've got renal strain. So at rest, we can sweat as much as a, a liter of, of sweat per hour. If you're physical act, physically active, it can be as much as three liters per hour. Now, ingesting enough water in order to replenish those lost fluids, is pretty difficult, particularly considering that you have a limitation of how much fluid you can absorb. And we may excrete up to 50% of the water that we take on, particularly if we drink it very rapidly. And so if we have these prolonged heat events where we have progressive dehydration, particularly if the thirst mechanism for some reason is impaired, some evidence suggesting that thirst is impaired with aging. I don't think the evidence is as strong as it's sometimes portrayed in the public health literature. But anyway, if, there, if we inadequately re replenish those fluids, reduces blood volume, uh, reduces the flow of blood to the kidneys, if we've got an underlying kidney disease, this may then set off uh, a, a, a catastrophic renal event. Now, of course, with heat stroke and with cardiovascular strain, that dehydration also aggravates the risk of, of those two things as well. So that's in summary what happens. Yeah. And who's most affected by these heat events? 
So again, if we go back to my response to, I think the second question is about how we respond to the heat. We need to think about physiological or biological vulnerability. So if you have conditions that limit your ability to sweat or limit our ability to redistribute blood to the skin surface, then that makes us physiologically vulnerable. So the obvious ones are primary aging. So beyond the age of 65, particularly beyond the age of 75 years, uh, we have age-related decrements in the ability to sweat. This predominantly arises due to um, a lower sensitivity to acetylcholine, which is the neurotransmitter, which is responsible for, for sweating. That can be maintained if we're very fit, but often as we get older, we have other conditions which limit our ability to remain as fit as possible. So I think that's why we see uh, heat-related mortality and morbidity really kind of spike in those older age groups. Now, if you have this primary aging, and then that is now accompanied by other chronic diseases, particularly cardiovascular disease, renal disease, type 2 diabetes, things like this, this again makes you additionally vulnerable to the negative health effects of extreme heat. Now, those alone are not necessarily a problem if you're not exposed to the stressor, right? So this is why it's really important for us to think about not just a physiological vulnerability, but the adaptive capacity through behavior in parallel. And then think about understanding how the perfect storm of vulnerability, if you will, is this physiological vulnerability occur occurring alongside a really limited adaptive capacity to the heat. So this means people who are living in low resource settings who don't have access to cool spaces. It means their exposure is much higher. Um, if we then have a disability or have limited mobility, then this means that the ability to adapt and seek cool spaces is, is really limited. If we have limited access to clean drinking water, again, this really kind of aggravates this, this super vulnerability. Um, so we need to think about it in these, these two things happening, uh, coinciding with each other. And I think that that's borne out by the, by the epidemiological evidence from heat waves of the past. And what has been most surprising to you as you've come to research and understand this topic? I think the thing that's been most surprising to me is that, so my, my background is a is physiologist and there's, there are a lot of thermal physiologists in, in, our, in our scientific community, a lot of excellent ones who are doing great work. And I think what's really surprising is when you then start engaging in the wider heat and health area of research, there doesn't seem to be a premium placed on understanding how heat interacts with the human body and thus the causes of or the pathways to these negative health events. And I think physiology and biophysics is a really important component because in order to develop comprehensive solutions, evidence-based solutions to problems, it's really, really important that we understand the pathways. Otherwise, we're just kind of guessing and seeing what works in, a, in a, an environment where there are limited funding, limited resources available, limited time. It's really important that we hedge our bets by trying to understand the pathways before we start trying solutions. Otherwise, the solution is, you know, avoid the heat, which is which is very difficult. And it's not and it's not a plausible solution for many of the most vulnerable. So the surprising thing is, has, has been to date the, the, the lack of integration of the understanding of how humans actually respond to the heat in heat health research. Now, we're trying to trying to provide that, that piece of the puzzle and we've been very successful and we've been very lucky to, to collaborate with um, some tremendous people in the heat and health research area, which have um, really 
place value on the understanding. It's so interesting because I think it's almost like the pace of climate change is faster than our culture changes, you know, so everyone kind of has whatever the wisdom is of their area. Right. You know, like I grew up in the yeah, Pacific yeah. West. I'm a native Oregonian and we don't have air conditioning. Like that's just the thing. Everyone's like, right. you don't need air conditioning in Oregon. Right, right. And people were dying. And I went to my native yep. or, you know, my parents and I said, nope, this is the year you're getting air conditioning because you guys are, you know, not advanced age, I won't say, but have some comorbidities and, you know, this just... <laughs> That's it. You it's know, very, we're getting AC it's like very, it's a new world. Yeah, it's very diplomatic, Erica. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's funny. It's, you know, I do think yeah, climate change yeah. is making us have yeah. to, you can't just say, oh, well, I tried this once and it worked out. We really have to nail this down quickly. That's right. And stay on it's top one, of how things are changing. Because one know, chance is maybe all you get. Yeah, um, exactly. Because the, the, the heat can kill. It'd yeah. be really good if we can talk a little bit about adaptive strategies particularly air conditioning and yeah. potential alternatives. No, I would love to. So yeah, I mean, especially with climate change and everything, which I assume will yeah. only make these events worse and more frequent. What are simple Absolutely. steps that people can do, you think, as adaptive strategies to prepare for yeah. heat events or during them, yeah. or especially for people who don't have access to air conditioning? Well, it's, you know, it's quite complicated, isn't it? So um, first of all, want to go on record by certainly acknowledging that air conditioning is exceptionally protective. Um, against the negative health effects of extreme heat. That's been demonstrated over and over again in epidemiological literature for decades. Makes sense if it's really hot outside, but you're not exposed to the heat, of course, you're not going to have a negative health event associated with that. The issue is, well, there are a couple of issues. First of all, the most vulnerable often don't have access to air conditioning. We see a lot of people in, in Australia, particularly elderly people, particularly at this moment in time, where the cost of electricity is going up quite a lot is that people might own an air conditioner, but they don't really want to turn it on because they're worried about the electricity bill. And then there's also this idea of saying, okay, well, if every, if we find a way of getting air conditioning to everybody, even the most vulnerable, is this a sustainable pathway forward? And I would argue it's probably not for, for, for a few reasons, but the most obvious one is that at the moment, technology is at a stage where most air conditioners use a lot of electricity. And in a lot of places globally, particularly here in Australia, but I think it's true in large parts of the US, certainly a place like China and other large countries, highly populated countries, that a lot of electricity is generated by coal-fired power plants. And so we, it's hot. We're adapting by turning our air conditioner on. That air conditioner is powered by fuel, which is uh, belching out CO2 into the atmosphere, which is then contributing to warmer summers in the future, which then causes to turn our air conditioning even more. So we're kind of locked in this maladaptive cycle, which we can't get out of if we just focus on air conditioning as the sole solution. Now and it also is a solution. There's power outages. I mean, that's the other thing is it's like, you know, everyone's on the air conditioning, you have these massive spikes in power use, and then it then you have a brownout or a blackout or rolling blackouts to manage it. Or people, a lot of this coincides with our wildfire season. So, you know, our power yes. grid will cut the power to an area to prevent wildfires, but then, you know, you don't have anything to run the air conditioning. I mean, or the yes. air filters. I mean, it's a that's exactly huge right. infrastructure. You know, there are, there are simple, exactly. There are, there are the simple logistical considerations of delivering enough electricity to enough people in order to keep everybody cool. So we could see how this is this is not really the the silver bullet that maybe a lot of people think think air conditioning is now. So in terms of trying to find alternative solutions, the way in which we've approached it here at the University of Sydney and some of our colleagues internationally is that we're thinking, okay, we've you've basically got two groups of people 
you've got the group people who are, who are very vulnerable, who are particularly vulnerable because of their physiological status and maybe because of the settings that they're living in. And we need to find solutions for that cohort of people, which are accessible, sustainable, cheap, and, and effective. Now, one thing that's really important is that those strategies that we're recommending to people, you know, we're not saying they should be used instead of air conditioning. What we're saying is that if air conditioning is not available, these are the things that people should try doing to try to navigate their self, themselves through heat waves safely. Now, what's important is that the information that we give people in those settings is evidence-based. There's a lot of public health guidance. Now, I have a second question as to what's most surprising is that there's a lot of conventional wisdom and old wives' tales that's been baked in to public health guidance, heatwave guidance for decades. And it's in there and it's so difficult to extract it. So anyway, no, I uh, so, by the end of this, I want some examples. <laughs> yeah, okay. So um I, I could give you well, I could give you some examples. Yeah. So I'll give you some examples of the things that that do work. So there are things that we can do immediately at the built environment level and then the personal cooling strategy stage. So there are things that we can do to reduce the temperature inside a house, which is quite simple. People will hear this and go, oh, I've heard this all before, but there are some nuances. So early in the day, it's important that we shut windows, is that we close curtains or blinds, because what this means is that the extra solar radiation that is um, in the outdoor environment will it'll, prevent it heating up the indoor environment. Now, if you live in a house that is has low insulation, and you particularly if you live on the top floor of a, of, of a building, the roof has poor insulation, the indoor will eventually heat up to be warmer than the outdoors. And it's then when you should be opening blinds and opening windows. So to delay that happening, shutting windows, shutting blinds, but circulating air inside the home with devices such as fans is really important because of course you want windows open to get the natural ventilation. So if you're shutting them, you wanna make sure you get that, that mechanical ventilation going because that aids convective heat loss and evaporative heat loss from the skin surface. The blinds will reduce the amount of solar radiation that's coming in. And the thing is then you might get to the point where you still need to cool the person. Now, the hot environment is the problem, but the real problem is the hot person in the hot environment. And there's ways in which we can cool a person without necessarily reducing the air temperature as much as we do with air conditioning. So for example, we can um, utilize processes of evaporation. So if we place water on the skin surface, and then that water evaporates, it is exactly the same job that sweating does without the accompanying physiological strain that is required to generate sweat in the first place. It's work, you know, you can wear wet clothing, you can use a sponge or, 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 or a wet cloth, and that's really quite effective, particularly at mitigating the cardiovascular strain that develops when we're exposed to extreme heat. That particular solution is also very relevant for blackout or brownout scenarios where also there's no delivery of electricity. So, but often we have water, access to water. So the question is what the best thing you can do with that water. And what we found through our experiments in control conditions is that applying water to the skin surface is, is the best solution to date. We've also tested lower limb water, cold water immersion, and that's okay, but it's not as effective as, as skin wetting. There's also the idea of using fans and we've done a lot of work on fan use in extreme heat events. Currently, public health guidance from CDC, WHO, et cetera, suggests that fans should be turned off when air temperature exceeds about 35 degrees Celsius. That's a low 90s, 90 Fahrenheit. And that, that's really very conservative. And we've shown that fans can be effective at reducing how hot you get, reducing the cardiovascular strain that develops up to temperatures about to about 40 degrees Celsius, so just over a, 
100 degrees Fahrenheit. But what we do know is that in elderly people in particular, when fans are used in very hot, dry heatwave events, such as the event that was experienced in Oregon back in 2021, this actually accelerates body heating. It doubles the amount of cardiovascular strain that develops during exposure to heat, and it doubles the rate at which one dehydrates. So that's a very important point. So when we're using these devices, yes, there is an environmental limit to which they should be used. They're higher than is what is currently recommended, but there is a limit, and above those limits, these devices can actually be dangerous. So that's that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. It's hard to give that much nuance to public health messaging at times. That's right. So one of the things that we're doing is working with various organizations to try to simplify these public health messaging and actually disseminate them to the point where they are reaching the most vulnerable. So a an, an really important part of the work that we do at the Heat and Health Research Incubator at the University of Sydney is that we work hand in hand with public health organizations. So domestically, we work with New South Wales Health. We work with the Department of Health in Victoria. Those are the two largest states in Australia. We also are starting to work with the Department of Health in Australia. But we've also working through the Global Heat and Health Information Network, which is co-convened by the World Health Organization and the World Meteorological Organization, the Red Cross. And through that collaboration, we've also just um, had a partnership with Google. So Google have just um, launched a new excess heat warning package that's embedded in the Google search engine on every phone and every laptop and every device. And so when there's an excessive heat warning, we've had the opportunity through our collaboration with the Global Heat and Health Information Network to actually um, inform those tips and what people should do to keep cool. And the necessity of that, you've got to make it simple and you've got to make it actionable. And so, you know, for example, when it comes to fan use, what really matters is actually the humidity as well as the temperature. But expecting people to know what the temperature and humidity is at the same time is impossible. So we've come up with simplified temperature threshold at which people should be taking certain actions. There's one other thing that I'd, I'd like to share with you as well, Eric, which I think is important. So when it comes to the vast majority of the population that do use air conditioning, I think it's unrealistic for us to expect people to sacrifice their air conditioning and get really hot, even though they might not be physiologically vulnerable, because people just simply are not going to do that. So we need to find ways in which we can incentivize people who have air conditioning to use it less but not do it at the cost of feeling any different. So we're now helping pioneer a, a strategy called a fan-first cooling strategy. And this is a, a very simple intervention where if you circulate indoor air with devices like an electric fan, might be a pedestal fan or a ceiling fan, what it means is that the temperature of the air feels about three to four degrees Celsius cooler than it does when the air is not particularly moving in a, in a forced fashion. So what this means is that the thermal sensation that you get at 22 degrees Celsius is the same as what you can get at 26 degrees Celsius when you're moving air because you're accelerating heat loss via convection. So you feel exactly the same at 26 degrees Celsius as you do at 22 degrees Celsius. This means you can adjust your thermostat set point on your air conditioner up by about three to four degrees Celsius. It means the AC unit will turn on at a higher temperature. It means it turns on later in the day. It turns off earlier in the day. We've got a modeling study that we looked at using this. Um, if everybody in Australia adopted this technique um, throughout the course of a typical year, it will translate to a, around about a 70% reduction in the amount of electricity used for cooling on average wow. uh, per household. Yeah. And this is something that everybody can do. Move air more, you chill it less, you feel exactly the same, you save money on your electricity bill 
plus the greenhouse gas emission reductions from a cost benefit analysis is better than when we all switch from incandescent lighting to LED lighting. So this is a very powerful, very implementable strategy that everybody can use and can make a real difference to both the electricity bills, so the cost of cooling, but also the environmental impacts of cooling. This is a paper that was published in Lancet Planetary Health last year. Nice. Well, you know, anything we can do to help with climate change, because um, obviously I think a lot of us are worried about our kids. So speaking of, you Did know, you what can schools be doing? So I, you know, I worry about this a lot. I have three young kids, you know, and yep. our kids, you know, they're running around outside. You know, I've I've had times where I've had to pull them out of the playground and try to give them water and yep. put wet washcloths on them. And, you know, what, yep. what can schools be doing? Because it's, it's hard to yeah. keep track of that many kids and they want to run. Yeah, I have a three year old. So I'm uh, becoming increasingly aware of these challenges. Uh, so uh, back in 2019, we received a uh, generous research grant from the National Health and Medical Research Council in Australia to develop the um, first evidence-based extreme heat policy for child and youth sport. This is work that we're doing in collaboration with my colleague, uh, Professor Julian Perriard at the University of Canberra. Uh, so his team and our team here at the University of Sydney have been spending the last four years, notwithstanding interruptions because of COVID, of course, uh, collecting data to develop this platform, which will enable us to provide evidence-based uh, recommendations and recommendations on limit environmental limits to when physical activity can be carried out safely by kids. We've done this already for adults, and then we're going to be importing the, these extra data, these new data on kids into the, the adult platform. So through our work with Sports Medicine Australia, we have a nationwide extreme heat policy for 35 different sports. We've also, and we've now embedded that, that policy in a web tool, which everybody can access. We've got a US version as well. So we'll be happy to share that with you if you want to put it in oh, the notes. please do. Especially Definitely the, put it in the show the notes. Podcast. <laughs> Basically, what this enables people to do is that you go on this web tool. You can have it on your phone as well. It's compatible with your phone. And as long as you have a GPS, so it knows where you are, you can enter the postcode. It then draws on the nearest available weather station, which tells you what the temperature and humidity is. And then you enter the sport that you're playing and it will tell you uh, what the heat stress risk is. So it goes from low to moderate to high to extreme. And then associated with each of those four categories are evidence-based advices on how to mitigate the heat stress risk um, in kids and adults. And it also has a forecasting function up to as much as seven days in advance. So you can see if your kid's got a softball tournament coming up on at noon on Saturday, and you can look at what the heat stress risk forecast is for the location and for that time, you can then think about what you need to do to be prepared for that, or even start having conversations about rescheduling or cancellation because of the heat stress risk that's associated with that. In, in, in that case, that's one thing in which we've really tried to have a nuanced physiological and biophysical solution, but delivering it through a platform which is very easy to use and very easy to implement. So people don't need to do all these calculations and think about all these things. They just need to look at a simple, effectively a traffic light system. Yes, it's four lights, it's three. And, um, and then it also gives us a platform to push evidence-based advice on how to mitigate the risk as well. Oh, that sounds great. So stepping back, are there steps that communities as a whole should advocate for to make, you know, the entire community more resilient to heat events? Important steps that really need, you know, elected leaders or politicians to take steps yeah. to kind of make them more widespread versus just kind of at the individual level? Yeah, I mean, I think for a couple of things. So a heat response disaster framework is really important. That's something that we're working on here in Australia is to make sure that all of the different emergency services 
uh, all the different services are coordinated and everybody understands what their role is when there's going to be an extreme heat event coming. There's adequate preparation in advance of that and ensuring that everybody is 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 adequately coordinated. Obviously, resources associated with ensuring that each of these agencies have um, the tools available and the personnel available to be able to support this framework is obviously very important. And I think also integrating all the different organizations that are working at different levels of governance in the community. You know, there's some wonderful non-government organizations. We have a great one here in Australia called Sweltering Cities. You do some great work with vulnerable populations, specifically focusing on heat resilience. They understand so much about the problem. Plugging them into solutions is so important and supporting them um, and understanding the, 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 uh, the value that they can add I think is um, a key to comprehensive solutions moving forward. Absolutely. You know, I get so enthused when I, you know, learn about ways that we could be planting more green spaces rather than just having heat reflecting off cement buildings and cooking. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it's also it's thinking about the things that we can do. There are things that we can do in the short term. So if a heat wave is coming tomorrow, planting more trees is not going to make a difference. <laughs> but we, so we need to build resilience in the short term. Them. So getting the right information in the right people's hands at the right time and providing resources, cooling refuge, refuges uh, are, are really important, or cooling sensors and ensuring people know where they are, understanding the barriers for people using them, et cetera, et cetera. But then in the longer term, we need to think about the way in which we plan our cities, the way in which we ensure that the built environment are constructed to an adequate level that the, they're not turning into hot boxes in the middle of the day, making sure that at the landscape level, we're thinking about integrating green infrastructure, blue infrastructure. And that requires policy changes. It requires political will. It requires money, funding. And um, finding the people that are going to commit to that. The trouble with that type of solution is that you're not going to reap the benefit from changing the landscape, changing the way in which our cities are, are organized and built, even changing building codes. You're not going to see the benefits of that in, within an election cycle. And so that is the challenge, I think, particularly in Australia, where we have a three year election cycle. So. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was crazy in the US. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe that's why we should all look at our kids and maybe, you know, think about their futures and then maybe we can Absolutely. Uh, make some Absolutely. more green spaces. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and most importantly for your research and all the work you're doing to try to help us avoid these horrible heat events. You know, as an ICU doctor, it has been really hard because people are always coming to me when the ship has sailed, you know what I mean? When it's that's really right. too late yeah, yeah, and we're yeah. just trying to get them back. And so that's the whole point of this work is to try to focus a little more upstream. So thank you for working upstream. Is no, there anything uh, else you want to add? My pleasure. <laughs> no, I, th I, I think I think that's all. Um, that's, uh, and thank to, thanks to you for doing uh, initiatives like this and obviously for the work that you and all your colleagues do. I sincerely appreciated that interview with Professor Jay. It gives me hope to have scientists working on solutions. Our response to a changing climate has to include not only decreasing greenhouse gas emissions, but also adaptation to a hotter world with more extreme heat events. Whenever there is a heat advisory, I think back to those ICU shifts of June of 2021. I also think about the lovely hot day the following summer, in which my kids have been playing in a park while wearing sun hats and sunscreen. Afterwards, one of them became increasingly sleepy. She didn't want to drink water and became very hot and lethargic. She also developed heat illness, and we spent many anguished hours working on hydrating her, applying wet washcloths for evaporative cooling, and more. It was a very scary thing for a parent, especially after what I had seen in the ICU the year before. 
This is one of the reasons kids can be so vulnerable to heat illness. They love to run around and play, even when it's hot, and often need reminders from us to take shade breaks, hydration breaks, and more. We need to have plans for future heat waves and warming planet, but it is important to realize that just hoping to have air conditioning for all is currently the most costly in terms of financial resources, energy, and greenhouse gas emissions, and it really doesn't help us if there are brownouts or blackouts or a utility has to cut power due to wildfire risk. This has been seen with power outages around the world, including in the 2003 power outage in New York City, in which the death rate increased by 122%. We can insist that our communities plan for a warming climate with increased green spaces, more heat-resilient buildings that use passive cooling techniques, and ensuring we have community-wide plans for heat events. In our own families, we can use non-energy-intensive ways of cooling our home and ensure we know who is vulnerable and more. So what can you do? First, install the Climb app for personalized thermal warnings. See the show notes for how to get it. Second, make a plan for heat events with your family and for what you will do in case of power outages, brownouts, and blackouts. Next, find out who is vulnerable in your home and community and make sure they know what to do. Check with your school about heat event plans. Consider a fan-first strategy in your home during warm weather. Set the thermostat higher and use fans for circulation prior to turning on the AC. Save on energy bills and decrease greenhouse gas emissions. Though, if there is no AC, make sure to pay attention to alerts of thresholds at which fan use may be harmful. Finally, find out what your city, county, and state are doing to decrease greenhouse gas emissions and build for heat resiliency in your community. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.